All right, well, good morning, or re-good morning to those of you who I saw earlier. I know some of you, uh, some of you this feels like 8.45, you just roll out of bed. So uh, thank, thanks for being here. <laughs> I, told, I told our first service, I, I thought about welcoming people to our small group, you know, when we started at 7, but I was impressed, you know, this, this, the first service people, they, uh, they roll out of bed and they get here early. So, uh, so thanks for being here. We're uh, in our third week, We've got uh, four weeks left after this. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that Jesus is a Savior who gives hope to the hopeless. I pray this morning that we will find hope in you through the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just kind of quickly rehearse where we've been and where we're headed. So our first week together, we laid a foundation. We looked at Isaiah 43, where God promises his people two things. One, that they will walk through the fire, they'll walk through the water, but also that he will go with them uh, through that so that tough times, difficult times will come uh, to everyone, but God will be with us during those tough times. And the last time, we talked basically about defining terms of fear, anxiety, and depression. We kind of walked through that and then looked at specific criteria for each and, and, and maybe how to self-diagnose or help others diagnose a little bit. In fact, I was talking with someone this week, and they said, you know, you were going through those. I thought, like, I think I identify with all those. <laughs> And, uh, and so maybe you felt that way, maybe, uh, maybe you didn't. We said the Bible doesn't have a lot to say specifically about the terms anxiety and depression, but it does talk about kind of a broader category that fear, anxiety, and depression fit into. Does anyone remember what that was? Depression is a form of this. It's a form of suffering. So the Bible says a lot about suffering, but not necessarily a lot about these specific issues, although we do see examples of this. So God has a lot to say about suffering, the causes of suffering, kind of the nature of it, and then also how we would combat suffering. And so he said the ultimate cause of suffering is what? Sin. So back in the beginning, right, sin caused all this. That being said, it's not necessarily the immediate cause. In other words, your, your specific suffering might not be caused by your sin. So if you have cancer, that's not, you know, because when you were a little boy, you threw a rock through a window. There's not, there's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. The immediate cause, we said, is complex which makes it difficult. So we know kind of ultimately everything can be traced back to the beginning uh, to sin, and yet in our lives as individuals and today, it's not necessarily that easy to track. Well, today we're going to be talking about this, diagnosing fear, anxiety, and uh, depression. Well, this morning I, I, feel, I feel pretty good overall about this, but there have been periods in my life where I just did something stupid and I uh, tweaked my back. You ever had this where you're just kind of moving along through life, you sleep the wrong way, you bend over the wrong way. It's normally, I would like to say, you know, it's like moving a giant boulder. It's never that. It's like putting my pants on or something. It's doing something dumb, and and I hurt my back. Well, you have that, and uh, maybe some of you have experienced prolonged uh, times where that's happened to you. Well, what happens when you have back pain? Limits your range of motion. Uh, It makes it hard to do ordinary tasks. In fact, I I was thinking about it one time, and I, I brought this pen up. Because if I drop this pen on the floor right now, what can I do? I can, this will amaze you that I have the ability to do this. I can bend over and I can pick it up. I know, I appreciate that. That's, that's, that's an amazing feat, right? But there have been times in my, it is, yeah, so, yeah, Josephine says it is an amazing thing. There have been times in my life, though, where I drop that same pen on the floor and I look at that, I think, if I get over to get that, I ain't getting back up. Like, it's, it's over, you know, like, or I kind of like, kind of, 
you know, angle down to get it, or I stick my leg way out to counterbalance, because what seems like a very ordinary task, something that, you know, 99 out of 100 days of my life I could do, on that day with my back feeling the way it is, I can't do that very simple task, picking up my pen when I drop it. And that's a little bit what it's like to have depression. That things that seem very ordinary, like you ought to be able to accomplish and you ought to just kind of bend over and pick up that pen, suddenly you can't function at a, at a normal level. And so things that seem just kind of matter-of-fact, everyday sort of experiences, they are very difficult. Debre depression can be debilitating. And it's not that you can't do difficult tasks. Sometimes it's you, you can't do the very basic tasks. You can't do the, the most ordinary things. So relatively simple tasks feel absolutely overwhelming. And in that moment, on that day, picking up my pen felt overwhelming. I can remember that thinking like, I don't think I can get that up off the floor. Getting in, out, getting in and out of the car, something you do every other day, you get in and out, but suddenly you got something there in the middle of your back, and just getting into or getting out of the car is very, very difficult. And that's what it's like to battle at some level with debilitating uh, depression. So as we define this, I want to talk through a weakness of diagnosing depression. Now, there are a lot of weaknesses or kind of downsides or things that make this difficult. But one thing that is difficult about diagnosing depression is this, that diagnosing depression does not cure depression. So, in other words, knowing you have it, it's kind of like, thanks, that's encouraging. I got it. What do I do now? Or, or maybe, you know, last week we're going through that list of symptoms, and you're like, okay, yep, 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 uh, maybe not. You know, you're, you're going through it, and it's like, okay, where do I go from here? How, how do I get help from here? It's like if you, if you have cancer. Like, at one level... It was nice not knowing. you had. If you got it, it's almost nicer not knowing you have it, living in ignorance of it. And being diagnosed with it doesn't cure it. So you get diagnosed with an illness, it's not the same as being cured. So depression can be fatal like cancer. But it can also be a little bit more, and some of y'all heard this already, but um, some of us will look at it in the next service. But it can be a little bit also like the woman who has the issue of blood for 12 years. She's got this condition is debilitating. She feels like, and is in many ways on the outskirts of society looking in. It's something that ostracizes her or makes her feel ostracized. It's perpetual. It's darkness. It's loneliness. It's, it's fear. But it won't kill you. But it's almost worse than if it did kill you. And it's if, if, if you got a disease like that, it's like something you got to live with every day. It's almost harder than something terminal and quick. Like, just make it quick and easy, Lord. Like, no, this is long and drawn out. And, and depression or anxiety can be a little bit <coughs> like that. So both this week and next week, we're going to be looking at kind of, okay, how do we diagnose uh, depression? Now, in doing this, I'm not claiming to be, nor will you become kind of clinical psychologists where you can spot this at any time. But at some level, hopefully, we can uh, become more skillful both at uh, helping ourselves and potentially uh, helping others as well. So how is it then that we can spot uh, depression. Well, this is a little bit difficult because depression, it doesn't spot, it doesn't kind of pop up with, with a label. Uh, you know, I'm struggling with depression. And anxiety can look uh, different, it can take different forms in different times. It never takes, uh, it doesn't take the same form for everyone. And often with the same person, it takes different forms. 
And so each of us experiences discouragement and fear uh, differently. And sometimes uh, it might be the level of discouragement that's overwhelming, or it might be everything else we're experiencing in life. So, I mean, let's, let's say dropping my pen is a discouraging moment. If I don't get discouraged, it's, it's an illustration. I don't really get sad if I drop my pen. But let's just, say, let's just say that something sad happens to me, and it's a relatively small thing. Well, sometimes that circumstance might be, I'm fixing, like, what's the big deal? Why am I crying? I just dropped my pen. But I'm not crying because I dropped my pen. I'm crying because of everything else I've experienced in life. And that can make it very difficult because the thing, kind of the presenting symptom that we're looking at feels like, this is stupid. Why would I cry? Why cry over spilt milk? But I'm not crying over the milk. I'm crying because I lost my husband. I'm crying because, because I feel this inner darkness, this inner sadness, and I don't know what to do with it. And, then, and so suddenly it's like, man, I'm such an idiot. Why am I struggling with this? And at one level, that's kind of the presenting issue, but it's much more complex than that because that's what I can see, but that's not really what I'm struggling with. So how does depression affect us? And so there are three areas that we're going to look at kind of holistically that depression affects us, particularly deep fear and anxiety. And one difficulty in struggling with depression is that it's sometimes difficult to admit that we're experiencing it. Now, some people are used to this. They're like, uh, you know, that's where I live all the time, and so I'm cool with that. But if you think of yourself as a competent person, kind of a, a with-it person, someone who's got a plan in life, it's difficult to admit to yourself that you're struggling at some level with this because just admitting that you're struggling with depression is what? Depressing, right? I mean, no, no one wants to say, oh, yeah, that, that, that's me. And, and so it's difficult to admit it. And then admitting that it's true even when we admit that it's true, we don't necessarily recognize the root cause of it. So in other words, okay, I'm feeling this way. I recognize I've got these symptoms, but I don't know why. Now, maybe that you do know why, but you may not know why. And it's, it's also possible it's something that you, you might not remember. It might just be uh, some component of, of some physiological component you can't recognize. So we have to start somewhere. And so to diagnose, we're really going to start with its effects. So it's like, it's like that, that tangled fishing line. And you've got to start somewhere, and so we're going to start with kind of what, what, you can, what you can see. So working through the effects of depression can be like walking through a corn maze. You're lost there in the middle. You can't see, you know, what's, what's going on at a, at a bird's eye view. Maybe someone else can see that, but you can't see. And, but it's more like working through a complicated maze or, t- or tang- untangling a tight ball of just, just tangled uh, yarn or fishing line. And so sometimes it's obvious and direct. So there's a specific cause you're sad. Your, your husband dies. Your child dies. There's a specific cause linked to a specific effect in your life. Very, you know, it, it may not be easy to deal with the effects of that, but you can recognize what caused it, and in recognizing the cause, it's pretty simple. But oftentimes, it's not like that. It's like that pen. It's one simple thing, and it's a trigger, and, but, but now, and now you're experiencing all of these symptoms, and how, how is it? So it's often indirect. It's often convoluted, and because it's complex, it's difficult. So where do we see the effects of depression? We're going to look at three main areas, and as you look at these, we're going to kind of look at breakdowns of each of these. We're going to see depression in our thinking, in our feeling, and in our doing. So kind of the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of this. So first, we're going to look at uh, depression in our thinking. So when we're captivated by uh, anxiety and depression, our thinking sort of becomes a prisoner to our anxiety. In other words, 
our thinking, which let's, let's say can normally function at, let's say an infinite range, it's not really infinite, but it feels infinite. Well, if you are struggling with anxiety and depression, that becomes like the walls of a cell and you cannot function outside of that mentally. And so kind of your ordinary thinking can range and go, but suddenly you're, you're boxed in by that, by that, uh, by that, by the, the prison of your anxiety. And so what are some things that would characterize uh, depressed thinking? One would be fatalism. Uh, someone, someone tell me, maybe in your own words, what is, what is fatalism? What's that? Yeah, things are just going to go on. In other words, like, it, what I do, it's not going to change anything. <clears throat> and if I'm a failure anyway, why try? It's like, I cannot try and be a failure or try and be a failure. Either way, I'm a failure, so why try? Kind of fatalistic thinking is no matter what we do, it doesn't change anything. It's kind of, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a bad view of the sovereignty of God. Basically, like, if, if God's got it all anyway, nothing we do changes anything, so why even try? And, um, and so fatalism can, can hit us all in our thinking. Uh, another way is that we think in terms of extremes. So the... If the standard is perfection, anything less than that, like, it, it ain't worth giving it a shot. So if, if I got if I gotta be fully healed, like partial healing uh, makes no difference. There's no point to being relatively improved. There are no steps in growth. And so uh, you, you might say things like, I'm a complete failure, even if you're only just like a little bit of a failure. Uh, you know, and, and maybe sometimes you feel like this is apparent, like, oh, I'm a total failure. And so you kind of run to extremes. And so if you can't be perfect, then like the opposite of perfect is terrible. Like there's, there's nothing in between. Uh, another way that this shows up in our thinking is by the experience, the, the feelings of embarrassment and shame. And so you think it's like a spot on your face or something. Everyone else can see what's going on on the inside of you. Everyone else can sense your, um, your failure, you know you're a failure, and so everyone else thinks you're a failure. And so you live in perpetual fear of shame. And so then uh, maybe even as a parent, you can see this in your kids. You know, you, you say something small. Uh, so, you know, something that when your child is eight, you say, hey, don't do that. And they're like, okay, I won't do that. And then they're like 14, you say, don't do that. Like, why do you think I'm such a failure? Like, why you always got to, well, that's because at some level they're experiencing feelings of shame and embarrassment that they didn't feel before. They're, maybe their body's changing or whatever. And so suddenly you're like, whoa, 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 what happened to my little girl? And it's like, there, there are changes going on. You're not saying anything different. You're not relating differently, but their feelings are that way. And so like the feelings of like, that is so embarrassing. Well, it's not really that embarrassing, but they're struggling with feelings of embarrassment and shame, and this can, this can happen. So small words of correction seem like someone's shouting at you. Why, why are you shouting at me? That's easy to see, you know, in 12, 14, 16-year-olds, but we get that sometimes as, as adults too, don't we? Where someone says something small to us. In fact, uh, I have this sometimes where I know my emotional tank is, is empty. And so on an ordinary day, someone says, you know, uh, someone offers me some piece of criticism that would feel like, whether I agree with it or not, you know, okay, they're trying to be helpful. On that day, it feels like, what? Why, 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 why you got to be on me like that? Why, why, why everything you say is critical? Is everything they say critical? No, I just feel like it is in that moment because my tank is empty. And some of us live with that uh, perpetually empty tank. And so everything brings shame. Everything brings embarrassment because I'm living under this cloud of shame. And so then constantly my tank is empty. So everything that someone says to me is, just feels hyper, hyper critical. 
Now, it might be that your, your husband or your wife is hypercritical, or it might be that you're, you feel like it's hypercritical. You know, like both of those things can be true, and it, it is difficult because something small feels very big, like dropping, dropping the pen. Uh, another way uh, in, your, that in your thinking is that you're really good at mind reading. In other words, you know what people are thinking and saying about you. You know, they're always thinking about you. You walk into a room and everyone's looking at you. Now, they ain't looking at you, but you think they're looking at you. And, uh, and then, occasionally, you find out that this actually is true. You fear that people are talking about you. And one time, you find out people are talking about you, which confirms that all the times you fear that people are talking about you, they really are talking about you. Because it happened one time. Right? Isn't this the way it works? Like, it, it confirms our fears. So we've got these fears that we're experiencing, and then occasionally our fears are confirmed, and then we find out, well, that's, that's really happening. And so it, fears, it confirms our fears. So it's happening a very small percentage of the time, but then when we find out it happens, it confirms that it's happening all of the time. So how does uh, depression affect our feelings? Well, it leads us to experience a range of emotions that are outside what people in an undepressed uh, state experience. In other words, so let's say if there's kind of like a normal human range of emotions from sadness to happiness, and this normal, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's different for every person. You know, some of us experience more in this third, and some of us experience, you know, more in this third. You've got optimists and pessimists. But what depression does is it kind of, I'll say, it lowers the floor, and so we experience, and it might lower the ceiling too, but we experience a range of emotions that is different than what we experience in other seasons of life or what ordinary people experience. So one really obvious one is sadness. In other words, we experience a range of sadness that is beyond normal sadness. We experience a range of negative emotions that is beyond what uh, people normally experience. And so this is, at some level, the most obvious uh, thing associated with depression, and it's closely associated with depression itself. I mean, sometimes depression feels like sadness. It can take other forms, but it's just, just this depth of grief and anguish that is beyond what we would normally experience. Now, um, so we go to a funeral, and we expect there to be a level of sadness there because you're, you're, you're mourning a loss. I mean, at, at, at one level, there's a side to it. You can celebrate a life, but you're also, in celebrating that life, mourning the loss of it. Right, So they're, they're, they're at some level, you're experiencing that. Well, you take that out of kind of a normal grief experience and you transfer that into uh, the rest of life. And, and that sadness, it's kind of odd. You know, if you, if you walk into someone's house and they're weeping, you're like, what's wrong? If you walk into a funeral service and, and the spouse or the, the, the children are, are weeping, you, you don't think that. You think that's appropriate. In, in fact, that's like a sign at one level that the relationship was, um, was, hopefully, was hopefully healthy. If, if you're mourning the loss, that's, that could be a good thing. If everyone's cheering at the funeral, that, that's, not, that's not a good sign of uh, a range of emotion. And so, so the fact that you're experiencing difficult emotions is, is good. But you take that out of that setting and you, and you take it, say, like to normal everyday life, and that range of sadness that's beyond kind of normal sadness that can be, that can be uh, difficult. Another way that this can manifest itself is in anger. Now, um, sometimes it might be that you really are angry at, at this situation, and some, but, but often you're, you're angry at life. You're angry at God. You're angry at the experiences. You're angry that you feel sad. There's something wrong with you, and you just, you just want it to go away, and you'll do anything to make it to go away. 
So then when you lash out at someone, you might be lashing out at that person, but you might be lashing out at life. You might find out that you're lashing out at God, like deep down inside you. You're mad at God for all this that you've experienced, and so it manifests itself in anger. And so this sadness is linked to this feeling of anger, and behind this depression lurks this feeling of anger, and it comes out maybe in this kind of lash-out anger, maybe in kind of cold, distant uh, relationship with the people you are around. Uh, Another way that this can uh, manifest itself is in hopelessness. So a feeling of hopelessness, like, you can't change, so why try? And this loss of hope over, it's, it's, it's this cycle. You have no hope, and it cycles down into worse and worse hopelessness. Because if you, don't, if you don't believe that you can change, if you don't believe that anything around you changes will change the circumstance, you're done, and you give up. And once you reach that point, it's, it, it, it's, it's this spiral downward into worse and worse uh, despair. Also, a sense of worthlessness. So um, the, 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 here, here's the difference. So I go along through life, and uh, I make a mistake. I'm like, I messed up. I failed. The depressed person goes through life, and they mess up, and they're like, I'm a failure. You see the difference? Like, one person fails, and the other person is a failure. One person did something wrong, the other person, their mistake. And, and at some level, this feeling of worthlessness kind of takes over. You don't make mistakes. You're the mistake. And, and perhaps sometimes this is built into us uh, from the very time we're, we're small children. You know, you feel like, we didn't plan you, whoops. Um, you know, or, or, you know, you're a surprise. And, and I, I do get that that happens. I'm just saying that, uh, that at some level, if, 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 if we're convinced we're a mistake, if we're convinced we weren't, you know, we weren't wanted, then we become convinced that there, we don't make mistakes. We are a mistake. We don't fail at times, we are a failure by definition, and that becomes our identity. And we can also lead to the feeling of panic. And so sometimes uh, this, this feeling of panic is associated with, with something real, uh, like, uh, you know, our, our daughter stepping over the copperhead. There's a moment of panic. Okay, well, that, that's real and, and reasonable that you should feel that. But other times you experience panic attacks, and there's not something that you can do uh, trace it to. And sometimes people who don't know they're depressed or aren't depressed experience panic attacks, and, and the fear of that can kind of lead to a more panic. And this kind of panic can ultimately lead to suicidal thoughts. Why? Because if you can make the panic go away, then it'll make that feeling go away, and the feeling's the enemy, and it's better to do whatever I can to make that go away. And so I just, like, end it to make it go away. So this has to do with our feelings. Well, also, uh, we can spot depression in our doing. So, what happens with our um, thinking ultimately comes out in our actions. What, comes, what, what happens with our emotions? Ultimately, it's expressed in actions or words. So, eventually, our actions themselves reveal depression. Now, there's probably a period of time at which our actions, probably for the longest period of time, can wear sort of the mask of, I'll say, normal respectability over them. So, you might experience uh, inner depression, but you, you medicate it away or you drink it away, or you cope with it uh, some other way, maybe, uh, maybe sugar or caffeine or whatever. You, you do something. By the way, I'm not saying if you eat sugar. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that, that you do something to counteract the effects of this in your life, and you can kind of mask that. But ultimately, it can come out in your actions, and particularly sometimes in feelings of futility uh, or weakness. So things that are ordinary tasks, dropping a pen, suddenly they require 
just remarkable effort, remarkable strength to do it. Now, uh, now, it might look like for you, you wake up in the morning and you lie there in bed and you cannot get out of bed. Now, I'm not talking the time changed and it's like, you know, you got an anvil sitting on your head and you're having a hard time waking up. I'm talking just kind of the normal basic function in life. You're lying there in bed. You literally feel like you cannot get up out of bed. Well, in that moment, it may be that you do not have the physical strength that happens. But often what we're talking about here is that your emotional and mental state is such that it affects you physically to the point where you can't get out of bed. You have the literal, physical, inherent strength to get up, but you don't have the emotional strength to face the day. And like you know if you get up, you've got to face everything that's waiting for you um, that, that you don't have to face. Maybe if you stay in bed, it won't be out there. I mean, it's still all out there. But if you stay in bed, it doesn't feel like it's out there, right? And so you cannot get out of bed because, uh, because of that. Or maybe it lo- uh, looks like this. Um, there's a, a work function or a church function or school function, and you see a room full of people. Now, and, and this has nothing to do, well, I'm, not, I'm not talking in, introvert, extrovert here, because some of us, you know, function in that world, and some of us don't prefer to function in that world. I'm just saying you kind of like shut down when you're facing kind of a normal social situation that a lot of people can function in, you feel like you cannot face this right now. It, it leads to a feeling of kind of a, a social fear, a social weakness, like I cannot encounter this. Why? Because if I do, then everyone will know who I am. I, I, fa- I face exposure. Everyone will know what a failure I am. Or I, or I go out there and you feel like I, I can't see the right thing or I can't, I can't do the right thing. So talking to people at church, talking to people at work or at a party, suddenly it's just like, it's just overwhelming. Well, because of this, this can lead to withdrawal. Now, withdrawal can, of course, be uh, an emotional feeling, but here we're talking about literal withdrawal. Because you can't face the world, because you can't face social situations, it leads to sort of this uh, personal, emotional, mental withdrawal from average uh, relationships. So because of emotional weakness, we avoid situations where our weakness will be exposed. Like if people don't know I have it, then I don't have it. You know, it's like if other people don't know, then, then I'm okay. And so we avoid situations. And, and what happens? So if we, if we fear being exposed and we withdraw, what happens? Becomes, yeah, we become, become isolated. We are antisocial. And then what happens over time? It makes the problem worse, doesn't it? Because then we have to lean into our crutch. Remember at the beginning we said that uh, depression loves being alone. That's not saying that, that you really like being alone. That's not the point. The point is that it's, it's, it's sort of uh, isolation is an incubator for the problem. And, and then it's, it's this kind of cycle. So we can't function, so we can't be with people. So we're not with people. And so not being with people, we cycle further downward into, into despair, into anxiety, into hopelessness. And so we experience a fear of exposure, and so we avoid situations in which we will be exposed. Now, at one level, this is logical, right? Because uh, let, let's just say you're, uh, you're at a point where, I don't know, you had surgery, and so you're wearing a hospital gown. It makes sense not to walk into work in a hospital gown. There are things that will be exposed that you don't want to expose and that people don't want to see. 
And this is true figuratively in terms of our feelings as well, right? There are certain things that we don't want to expose to everyone. And so that's why we talked before, like lean into relationships where you can be appropriately vulnerable, which doesn't mean that you can be vulnerable that way with everyone, but if you would draw from every relationship, you're in a, in a very, very uh, precarious position. Uh, and sometimes this can lead to uh, numbness. Now, this can be a feeling, but it can also in, in, uh, evidence itself in an actual physical numbness. We become uh, disinterested in life. Uh, you love certain kinds of food, and suddenly you find yourself, I don't even know what to eat anymore, right? You know, I, I, don't, I don't even like, you know, what you used, you, what you used to like. You know, maybe, maybe you're a passionate sports fan, NASCAR, if we call that a sport, or, uh, or, or with apologies to some here, Clayton, don't come up after me now. Um, but there, there's, there are ordinary kind of pursuits in life, things that you chase after, and you're, you just have no interest in those things. Or maybe uh, in your relationships, you know, you're passionate about your family, and, but, but suddenly, you know, in terms of your relationship with your, your husband or your wife, your kids, or what, your parents, whatever, um, the things about which you're the most passionate, now you're just, you're just numb. You, you don't even feel it anymore. Well, why is this? Well, some of it's because you have a, a, a range of emotion that you're designed to experience You've experienced emotions that you never want to experience, that you never, you never want to feel. And now, if you're arranging, like you're living down here. And how do you deal with that? You deal with it by cutting yourself off from feeling anything. Like if this is what you're going to feel, it's better to feel nothing than to feel that. And so you find yourself withdrawing and becoming numb in relationships. So if these are, these are kind of the effects of depression that we can see. Well, how do we trace our way back to causes of depression? So in other words, there are things that, that, that produce this in our life. What, what are the triggers that bring about these effects? So these are, so I said, you know, we're kind of working from the outside in. So you walk into a house and you can see someone crying. Okay, that's the effect. That's the obvious symptom. Now, it may be that they're crying because they just, you know, sliced their finger or maybe that they've experienced something difficult in life or maybe that they're in a period of time where they are just weeping, period. So what causes this or what triggers this? Well, there are various uh, levels of causes that can bring about, uh, bring about depression. Some of those are very easily traced. Some of those are very obvious. You can, you can see them, and it's like there's a, a one-to-one scenario. So uh, uh, one of the most obvious is just grief at the loss of, of a loved one. So you experience the loss of a loved one, and you go through a period of darkness. Well, does anyone look at you and say, you idiot, why would you feel that way? No, I mean, at one level, like, we get that, and we may all experience it differently, but, but it's, something, it's something that you experience, and so it's an obvious, obvious trigger. But some are uh, less obvious. And so sometimes there are immediate causes, but sometimes there are things that have accumulated over time, and, uh, you know, if it's, if it's that tangled, if it's that tangled knot, like down in the center, there's something that we cannot see, and so we experience darkness, and we've got all these triggers. We have, may have layer after layer of these, but there are certain triggers that lead to this in life. Well, one of the most obvious is stress. And some of you will say, well, okay, I'm done. I know what my life is like. It's stressful, so no wonder I feel the way I do. Well, there are a myriad of circumstances that can tri- contribute to de- depression, but often the one that kind of tips us over the edge is stress. Now, stress can be caused by a variety of factors. You've got high demands in your job, and you're, you're constantly pouring out there. 
And so let's say, uh, instead of working this way, we'll say we got this way. You know, you got so much emotional bandwidth, there's so much emotional energy, and you give it all to work, and you got none left over for other relationships. Or it can be uh, the flip, the flip side. You, you're right now, you're in a period of where your family has intense needs, and you don't function well at work because you're giving all of your emotional and mental energy to uh, your family or other relationships. And the experience of this stress can lead to withdrawal or discouragement. I mean, sometimes even good stress can lead to discouragement. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it, so imagine that you have two kids. They're, that's good, right? Now imagine you got 18 kids. That's hard, right? Now, what, anyone look at those children and say, oh, you know, what, what, a, what a curse to have children. No, but like, that, that's, that's a gift, but that can lead to stress. And, you know, and we all have a, a certain bandwidth, and so even good gifts can lead to stress. So it's like you pray for ki- children, and God blesses you with children, and suddenly you find yourself stressed. Or you pray for a job, you have no job, God gives you a job, and that job leads to all kinds of stress. You pray for a spouse, God gives you a spouse, and that person stresses you out. And so all of these things can trigger depression. Another trigger is our health. So when our bodies break down, it affects our minds and our emotions. So often, when uh, you experience a prolonged battle with illness, that illness is not the only thing you're struggling with, is it? It's a feeling of maybe knowing you're going to die. It's a feeling of pain, and you've got chronic pain, and you don't know how to deal with it, and this pain leads to intense uh, sadness and anxiety in your life. It's the experience of feeling like you're going through this, and even if other people are around and trying to walk through it with you, you know you're alone. I mean, no one else is experiencing what you're experiencing, and this can just be debilitating. We know, my bodies, we know our bodies are supposed to work, uh, but it can't work. Imagine that one day that you, know, you wake up and you can't walk. The day before you could walk, and now you can't walk. Is that discouraging? Yeah, that's real discouraging. But sometimes that happens in other ways. Sometimes it happens with very obvious symptoms like that, but our health can uh, break down. And so a, health, uh, a breakdown in health can lead to an emotional, spiritual, or psychological breakdown. Uh, sometimes a, a trigger might be what we call PTSD triggers from, uh, from past experiences, post-traumatic stress. Uh, and and these, these things might be um, skeletons in our closet that no one else knows we have. And so uh, we, we talked about this briefly before, but if, if you experience, um, if, if you're in kind of a front line of fire kind of uh, occupation, either a combat soldier at some level, or maybe you're a, a nurse or a doctor and you work in an ER or trauma ward, or, uh, or you're a first responder and you deal with death, uh, breakdown, tragedy all of the time, some level, you know, you're trained and equipped to deal with that, but there's another part of you that just maybe can be overwhelmed by that. But it's, but it's not just that. Some of us have experiences in our childhood uh, right now where maybe uh, a dad, uncle, grandpa touched us in ways. I mean, we keep that, we keep that at the back of our mind, but like we know it's there, and it's, it's, in, it's in the closet. We, we put it on the shelf, um, but we're not equipped as children to deal with that. And then that is our burden to carry the rest of our life, and it crushes us that we're carrying that with us. Or maybe, you know, you've learned to deal with that, but you fear for your own kids and, and, and the paralysis of what might happen to them or, or the world that we live in. 
I mean, it could be something stupid. I mean, say you, uh, you're, you're a little kid and you have a horrific accident on the playground when you're, when you're a child, and for the rest of your life you have kind of an irrational fear of playgrounds. Well, that's, it's, you know, why would you be afraid of a playground? It's a fun place to go. Well, it's like, in your life, it's a reasonable thing to be afraid of, because it represents the worst pain you've experienced. And so uh, we, we have uh, this, this trigger from our past experience. Uh, or maybe, I, I've, I've, I know people where this has happened. There's someone who looks like someone who's harmed you. That person has nothing to do with you, has never seen you before, but they resemble someone who, who represents something to you. And you fear or resent that person. And that person could be the most amazing person in the world, but because of this other experience in your life, you can't stand the side of that person. They walk into church, you sit on the opposite side of the room. Not because of who that person is, but because of what they resent, re- represent or the, the experience that they represent in your life. And so just seeing that person, smelling it, they wear the smell kind of per- same kind of perfume or cologne, they have the same kind of voice, puts you in a depressed state. Uh, another trigger can be, can be weather. So when it's sunny, man, I can conquer the world. When it's cloudy for five days in a row, man, life is terrible. Why, do, why, do we even, why are we even here? Uh, and, and to some degree, we're, we're all affected by weather, as in, uh, you know, maybe we all are a little chipper on days where life feels good, and then when life is dark, you know, we're not as chipper. We're, you know, during the summer, oh, you know, we got lots of daylight, or in the winter, we have less daylight. I've got a, a few friends who are just insane, and they really, really like over, overcast days. You know, it's like cloudy, and then they feel good about life. I'm like, dude, you got issues. Maybe you got the opposite issue, you know. <laughs> but, but weather can affect people, and uh, I mean, they even have you know, this is diagnosable SAD, seasonal affective disorder. I mean, they have people that this is traceable in, and, and you can see in there, there are literal physiological things going on in a person that make certain people susceptible, more susceptible to this uh, than other, and others. So when it gets real cold or when it's uh, rainy day after day after day, it can have an overwhelming uh, effect on our emotional well-being. Uh, another trigger is a life event. This is something, you know, that we can see or, or uh, and we have talked about quite a bit. So the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child. And so it can send you into an, a period of uh, fear or sadness. But sometimes it might be uh, the failure of someone in leadership. You've gone through uh, a difficult church, church experience here or somewhere else. And you've seen someone that you love and respect, you've looked up to, and you've seen that person fail. And their failure is like so disillusioning that it kind of ca- cross, causes your whole belief system to collapse at some level. And so grief and sadness, they're natural responses to certain life events, but that grief can then deepen into debilitating uh, anxiety and depression. Another trigger is uh, sin. So we said at the beginning that sin, of course, is the ultimate cause of all of this. It's, it's the reason that the world is broken. But here we're talking about it's, it's an immediate cause of depression. It sends you into depression. It's kind of the immediate obs- observed thing. So sometimes it might be uh, our sin. So we see a, a certain pattern of sin in our life. We, we spiral down into the same sin over and over and over again. And we're like, God, I'm never going to do that again, only to find ourselves there again, maybe soon after or, or, or a good distance after, we find ourselves battling, like, God, how can I struggle with anger that way? I mean, I swore to you, I, I would never lose it like that again, or I lost it like that again, or I would never abuse that substance again, and here I go, 
after that again, or, or pornography or whatever. There's uh, substances or addictions in our lives, and we cannot, cannot get a hold of them. And so this, this repeated struggle with sin can shake our security in Christ. It can shake our joy in our walk with Christ. It can shake our joy in our relationships. And to the extent that other people know about it, it can, it can sh- shake our, our confidence in our relationships uh, with other people. It can lead to fear and depression. Uh, but sometimes it's someone else's sin. So you make an idol out of someone and they disappoint you. And, and then that, that person gets taken away. And so this is emotionally devastating. So sin can be the trigger for depression. Another uh, trigger, actually, and this might be the most surprising perhaps, is the sovereignty of God. So the sovereignty of God itself can trigger depression. Someone tell me how you think uh, this might be. Okay, I'm so unworthy. Like, God is so great. I fall, it's, it's kind of like Romans 3.23, we fall short of the glory of God, and we're aware how far we fall short. And there's a part of that that is just crushing. God, how could you love someone like me? Like the, sims, you know, the hymn says you know, that God could save a wretch like me, and we get real fixated on the wretch part, which is true, but we forget about the grace part, that God would save us. His grace is amazing, and that's depressing. How else? Yeah, yeah, it's like at some level, I mean, if God's in charge, if God made everything, why would he make me like this? Why would God allow the world to have these problems. My, my kid is struggling with crushed by sin, addiction, whatever. At one level, okay, he's responsible for that, but if I think back real, 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 real hard, who's this all go back to? The creator, right? God, the, the one who, who made us uh, this way. So, your mom, your mom's a good person. Your mom's not one of the bad ones. She's like the rock in your life, the person you depended on, and God takes her. And as a believer, like how could a good God do that? How, how could God allow this to, to happen in your life? And so the questions are too big ultimately for you to answer. You can't answer why. You keep asking why, and either, either you have to assume that God isn't in control or God's not good. And either one of those is not a good option. And, and, and uh, both what, what Job says and both what Paul says, like ultimately the clay doesn't say to the potter, why you made me this way, but we all want to know, why'd you make me this way? And, and, and it's, it's difficult. And this can lead to feelings of, of fatalism, crushing depression. So the questions that are too big for us to answer and, and we're, we, okay, God, if you really are in charge of this world, if you really are, do heal sometimes and not heal other times, like, wh- why, why would you do this? Well, God, why won't you take away this feeling? God, why won't you heal what I'm experiencing right now? Why won't you take my anxiety away? Why won't you take my uh, depression away? So there are all these triggers for depression, and we could probably list more in subcategories of triggers, but the, the difficulty about diagnosing depression is that trigger is typically the last in a long chain of events. Now, it might not be, it might be an, a life event that is so traumatic that it's, it's very simple. But it might also be that you have all of this accumulated experience, your, your emotional makeup, your childhood, your strong, your, your, the presence of strong human relationships in your life or not your view of God, your sense of scripture, your understanding of your identity in Christ, 
uh, you have a good life or a bad life. You have a job that creates stress or a family that creates stress. You've got all of these things, and they kind of all come together, and boom, you find yourself in this experience, and you can point to one thing, but then suddenly, like, you, you get to get that thing, and then there's another link in the chain, another link in the chain. You kind of you keep going down, and you've got this infinite chain of events, and you're like, I don't even know where, where to go from here. So it's not even a linear chain. It's a, tangle, it's a tangled uh, ball of string. And somewhere at the, the, the center of this tangle, somewhere at the center of this knot, is uh, the root cause. So we're going to pause here for this week. Uh, next time we're going to be talking about, more about this diagnosing depression. And we'll begin by looking at c- cultural conditions that lead to depression. Uh, before we close here, any, uh, any kind of questions, comments, where we are right now? This is where you guys bowl me over with questions. We're, we're, we're too intimidated to do that. We're, people think bad of us. You know, we're anxious about that, right? I mean, we talked about that. Jeffrey. <laughs> That's a fair question. I'm too anxious about it. Scott. Oh, cool. Yeah, thank you for that encouragement. I feel less anxious now. Thank you. All right, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. And also, like last week, I had a couple questions afterwards. Helpful. I told you in our last session together, I'll try to work through kind of some commonly um, asked questions. If you have them, you want to send them in or ask, ask them uh, one-on-one, that's great. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. God, we do thank you that you are sovereign, and so you rule our lives, and yet some days it's more difficult to see that. We gotta pray that our hope would be in Christ, and you tell us that he is a God who gives hope, and that we can have hope through believing So God, we trust you, and yet there are days that we do have questions uh, too big for us. And so God, I pray for brothers and sisters here that are struggling with uh, with inner darkness. They feel that creeping in, or maybe just an emotional uh, funk or state they're in. Or God, as we try to help others, God, we pray that you'll equip us, and I pray that you'll give us hope in Christ, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.